that as we take some time to consider your word this morning, that we will be able to interact with you. Lord, as we hear verses read, as we hear illustrations given, Father, help us to hear your spirit as well. And help us to respond uh, to you silently or overtly, whatever. Father, we want to be your people and we want to live by your word. It's your guidance to us today. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Bob loved your introduction. But you know, God sometimes changes his mind and my mind. So I'm actually not going to be preaching from 1 Peter, even though that was the plan. I'm actually going to spend some time in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. And along the same themes, but uh, a different passage. And so we're going to look at... uh, Developing your Christian character for the last time in this series. And we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit and who has that tune in their head this morning. The fruit of the Spirit is not a banana. Never thought of seeing that before. So we've learned about these fruit of the Spirit and these these Christian values, these these uh, characteristics, these characteristics that we should have as, uh, as followers of Jesus. But what about living it out what about living the life and when i typed this in first i left the f off and i reread it we're not living a lie we're living the life the life that god gives because his spirit is in us and the life that we surrender to but we also have to work at remember it's not just a gift it's a it's a task so that we can be the people that god wants us to be to have that Christ-like character. So I'm going to be reading this morning from Philippians chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles there, then uh, you might like to turn to them. Aaron, can I get you to sync that up to that screen for me, please? Just to hit the sync button. You know the one? Double arrows, yeah? All right, we'll get there. And this is what it says. In Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27, Paul writing this uh, letter to the Philippians. He says, Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. What a powerful verse. Would you love someone to write that about us? I would. This is Paul writing to the believers at Philippi. Verse 28, he says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So he said the previous sentence, uh, you might stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So the Philippians were having some trouble in the community by people who were against what was called the way, the church of the way. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. What's the sign? The sign is that you are standing firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. This is a sign to them that they they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So what's the sign to the community that we are standing firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel? Verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer him. Hold on. Have I read that verse before? 
not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. We don't like that verse. But that's exactly what we need to be ready for. Because that's what will happen when people oppose the gospel. We will suffer for the sake of the gospel. Verse 30, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul lived this. He experienced it. He anticipated that all believers, not just the Philippians, but all believers would struggle in their faith. And I think we do, don't we? If we're honest, we struggle. He goes on in the letter, we have it in chapter 2 of Philippians, and it says this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Pretty powerful, pretty powerful letter, isn't it, from Paul to the Philippians? It's God's word to us today. So we've been considering over the last eight weeks or so, uh, growing and developing in our Christian character based on Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And I'd like you to repeat that off by heart now. No, it wasn't, wasn't a test, wasn't a test. You could just sing that song back to me, couldn't you? But I, I, in those weeks, uh, I've had people speak to me that God has challenged them, challenged many of us, I'm sure, to surrender the control of our lives to the direction of his Holy Spirit and to allow his Holy Spirit to bring out that fruit of his Spirit that God has given to us so that we might mature in our walk with Jesus, in our lives, in our service in the kingdom of God. don't know what God's done in your life over these past weeks, but he's certainly challenged me on some of the fruit of the Spirit that should be evident in my life because God lives there. Some people have told me that, that in the last uh, two months there's been some real defining moments in their walk with God. When they've heard God's word and they've chosen to respond. You know, that's what every pastor, every preacher wants to hear. That's a blessing when somebody says that to me. But I've got to be honest, and I think we all need to be honest, in that it doesn't always work out, does it? Living the life sometimes is living the lie. You could put on a good face, but is it real within? And, And what's our theme this year? Be true in 22, we want to be real, genuine, authentic followers of Jesus. So sometimes our aims, our hopes, our anticipations don't work out. The thing to come back to is that it's God's spirit in our lives. He will bring these fruit out as we're willing to submit and to surrender to his control. But there's other reasons why it doesn't work out. Often there's the unexpected reasons. Our plans change. Our best intentions get sidetracked. We might experience uh, sadness through a bereavement, somebody dying. Or, or we may face ridicule because of our life choices. Sometimes our relationships break down. Sometimes we suffer from ill health. And all these things can sidetrack us, sidetrack us from living the life that God wants us to live. One thing that we can be sure of, 
The Bible never promises an instant rose garden. You ever read that in the Bible? You come to me, believe me, and you'll have a life like a rose garden. It's not there. There's no guarantee either of our growth in our walk, in our life with Jesus. In fact, some of the Bible writers knew how tough life was. Job, when he wrote his story, in Job chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, Man born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. So he didn't have a real good outlook, did he, when he was going through his difficult times. And Jesus even warned us. He said, in this world you shall have trouble. Then he said, take up your cross and follow me. And he said, men will hate you and despise you because of me. So we've got to be careful when we're telling people about Jesus that we just don't paint the rosy picture. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Salvation through faith in Christ, Jesus dying on the cross for us, taking care of our sins, paying the price for so that we might have eternal life. That's a wonderful picture. But it's not an easy life, is it? Now, we will struggle. We will struggle between the temptations of the world, the distractions of the world, um, our own thoughts and desires. We will struggle, let alone any opposition that we face. Paul tells us here in verse 29, we are not only... Grant, guaranteed to believe in him or granted to believe in him but we must also suffer for him. What's it say in verse 29? For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him. When it says granted to you it sounds like a gift doesn't it? You know, is, there, is there such a gift of suffering? I don't know but we look at it that way. But it's a part of the deal. It's a total package. We have this wonderful faith in Jesus but we can expect suffering for him. It's true that our circumstances often dictate who we are, who we become, the way we live. And and psychologists will often say to us that we are products of our circumstances. True to a certain extent, I think when Christ comes in, that changes the equation. And God is saying something to us in 2022, which I think is something different. Whatever happens to us, we are not to be shaped in light of our circumstances, but to rise above our circumstances and live in the light of the gospel of Christ. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's true? I think it's true. Verse 27 said, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that whatever happens is pretty broad, isn't it? You know, the good things, the hard things, the tough things, the awful things. Uh, I found this illustration, tickled my, my mind. I don't know if it'll do it for you. An army recruit in the Marines uh, went to boot camp and he saw this cardboard cutout of their drill sergeant, a picture of the drill sergeant. This is just a picture with this caption above it. We didn't promise you a rose garden. Now, I don't know if you know about boot camps in the army. They're not the most easiest places to live in and you get put through some rigorous testing Probably not as extreme as the SAS stuff on TV, but uh, nonetheless difficult. And so um, after eight weeks of really hardcore uh, training, he noticed somebody had scribbled these words across the bottom of it. We didn't promise you you a rose garden. Somebody wrote, yes, but you didn't tell us about the fertiliser. Probably didn't use that word, probably used another word that expressed it that I don't want to use. 
So life can be tough in, a, in an army boot camp. And one thing is sure, just like the army, life can be tough when we follow Jesus as well. But as the army can mould a person into becoming a soldier, the opposition, the difficulties that we face shape us into soldiers of Christ. When we embrace Christ, we can serve him as a benefit of our Christian character, what he's shaping us into. So why did Paul write this letter? He wrote it because he had a one purpose in mind. And he says that in, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What was he talking about? He's talking about all the tough times that he went through, all the challenges, all the pain that he went through. Yet the gospel advanced. The gospel grew in people's lives. And his desire for them, that, that, that they would grow in the same way, that they would have the same expectations, the same advancement of the gospel. The background to this letter was that um, uh, if you read Acts chapter 16, it's a fairly good background to Philippians. Uh, Paul had received this call from God to go to Macedonia. And so he goes into, the, into Europe on his second missionary journey, we call it. He sailed from Troas to Neapolis, travelled along the, um, the uh, Roman road, Ignatia Way, and he travelled along that to the colony, the Roman colony of Philippi. And you may not know this, but 200 years before, in, two, in the second century before Christ, Philippi was a mini Rome. So, so all the political, social, all the architectural, uh, all the um, uh, um, uh, style of living was that of Rome. So if you went to Rome and then you visited Philippi, you'd say, oh, this looks like a, a lot like Rome. So it was that sort of style. And when Paul and, and, and his uh, journeyman Silas arrived with him, God did some amazing work in that town. There was, uh, there was uh, people converted. Uh, Lydia, uh, the seller of perfect purple cloth, uh, a demonic slave girl, the jailer and his family were all converted to faith in Jesus. But at that time, he also knew how hard his ministry was. He had been beaten, he'd been flogged, he'd been imprisoned. But in the midst of all that, this new, small New Testament church had started to grow. And this is where he was writing this letter to. And in, in, in the first chapter of Philippians, he wanted to assure them that he was doing okay, that he was okay, and that all the circumstances that had taken place were for his good and for the advancement of the gospel. So that's what he was writing to them about. And in verse 27, which we looked at earlier, it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my presence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. They were living the life. He was encouraging them to live the life. They knew God's presence. They knew this, the fruit of the spirit. And he was encouraging them to live it out. So what does it mean for us? I believe living the life means involves appropriate conduct. We have to behave as followers of Jesus. And Paul reinforces that. Nearly every letter he wrote in the New Testament, there's a verse at the beginning which says the same, virtually the same thing. In Ephesians he says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live life, sorry, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
They were called to follow Jesus. So live the life. Don't hide it under a, under a bushel, under a basket. Live the life that God's called you to. Again, in Colossians, he writes this, and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So the encouragement in his letters was to live the life. You know the truth, live the life. 1 Thessalonians, another, t- another group of Christians that he wrote to, pardon me, chapter 2, verse 2 says, We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Live the life. Live the life. And again in Thessalonians, he says, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So he's saying, live the life, live the life, live the life. And you can see he's moving into part of the life is, is, is persisting through suffering whatever that might be for you. So what's God saying to us today? We've heard this through the Spirit. We have that jingle of the song going around in our heads. We know the words. We understand the words a little better, bit better after the last eight weeks or so. How do we live this out? We live our lives in a worthy manner, conduct our lives in a worthy manner. Our lives should be living illustrations to everybody else around us that Christ is changing us into his likeness. We should be able to look back last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago, and see the changes that Jesus has made in our lives. Are we more like Christ today than we were in those times? What does it mean to conduct yourselves? I'll get back to that. Paul was saying, live as a citizen. Is the emphasis of that word conduct yourselves. In chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians, he says that our citizenship is in heaven. Not, a, not on this earth, our citizenship is in heaven. We are visitors here. We don't belong here. As such, we should live heavenly lives, which are lives that reflect the person and nature of Jesus. I could have said this morning, uh, look, I want everybody to fill in the visitor's book when they come into church today because. Really, we're just visitors here. Our real citizenship is in heaven, isn't it? But I didn't do that. Do you know who that is? Oh, you know who that is? Queen Victoria. Now, I've never seen this photo or this painting before, but I found this illustration which helps us to understand what it means to, be a, to conduct ourselves as followers of Jesus. When she was a child, she didn't know that she was in line for the throne. She didn't know that she was the next person in line for the throne. And a lot of her instructors were trying to prepare her for the future. Uh, They were frustrated because they couldn't motivate her to do things the right way, you know, as royalty has to do things the right way, wave the hands and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) I don't know if they did it back then. But, uh, But she didn't take her studies seriously. Finally, her teachers decided to tell her that one day she would become the Queen of England. When she heard this, Victoria quietly said, then I will be good. She'd realised that she had inherited, would inherit a high calling 
and it gave her a sense of responsibility that changed her conduct with her teachers from that moment on. In a way, we are, pre- we are being prepared for greatness too, aren't we, as followers of Jesus? We have this great inheritance awaiting us for eternity. And so we have this responsibility to conduct our lives according to the call that God has placed on us in our speech, in our habits, in our lifestyle. I will refer to 1 Peter, uh, uh, Bob, in these verses. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, it says, Dear friends, Peter was writing, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I'm not talking about Big Brother. There's enough cameras around to watch us wherever we go. I'm talking about the things that this little poem says. I found this poem. I am my neighbour's Bible. He reads me when we meet. Today he reads me in my home, tomorrow in my street. He may be a relative or a friend or slight acquaintance be. He may not even know my name, yet he is reading me. So people are watching us. They're watching the way we live. I didn't know you were religious. Some people might say to us, hey, we're not not religious, we follow Jesus. But people are watching us, the way we do life. Are we conducting our life through the gifts, the fruit of the Spirit, in a way that honours the call of God on our lives? What's our benchmark for conduct? It needs to be in accordance with the gospel of Christ. How Christ lived is how we should live. Have you ever seen those trucks or vehicles driving around on the highways around the streets and they've got uh, a sign which says, um, if this driver is done doing something awful, I don't know the exact words, I tried to get a picture of one and couldn't catch up to the driver. Um, was it a certain telecommunications company that I was driving behind? Maybe something like that, yeah. And what they're looking for is they're looking for the drivers to reflect the policies of the business or the, or the company, aren't they? And so if, you were, if that driver's doing something wrong, there's a 1-800 number or whatever there, you can say, uh, registration number such and such and such, this guy cut me off and caused me to have road rage. Now, you don't know the last little bit. But that's what they're looking for. They're looking for people to be responsible drivers that don't defame the name of that business or company. What would we wear? What banner would we wear? Do our actions and our lifestyle represent the King of Kings? Are we representing in our Christian lifestyles, our characters, that people are watching us, are we representing someone far greater, Jesus the King? in the car you know that my driving's not per- perfect and that I do some things wrong all of us will have those moments when we should exercise or exercise self-control when our c- conduct could be better we need to be 
real about that. We need to confess that to God and to anybody else that picks us up on it and say that we do make mistakes. But we need to strive to change. So living the Christian life involves appropriate conduct. What's your conduct life like as you believe in Jesus and follow Jesus? It also involves being in unity with fellow believers, Paul writes about. Where did he say that? In chapter 1 and verse 27. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Does that speak of unity? Yes, it does. Oneness of mind, oneness of heart. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Uh, peanuts. What was his name? Carl Schultz, was it? Charles. Well, look at this one. Let me tell you this story. Lucy demands that Linus change the channel on the TV, threatening him with her fist if he didn't comply. Linus asks, what makes you think you can walk over here and take over? Take these five fingers, Lucy says. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them up together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon which is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want? Linus replies as he turns away and says, why can't you guys get organised like that? (laughs) Not that we're promoting fighting or violence this morning, but we need to live out the fact that we need each other to function. Paul knows that Christian unity is is not just going to fall into place because he calls them, he he implores them, he writes to them and says, stand firm in one spirit. To contend, now that word contend is like a a gladiator in an arena. So to to contend together as gladiators in in an arena as one man in faith. Paul emphasizes the one if ever you read Ephesians he emphasizes the one and Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 you look at all the ones that are in this he writes as a prisoner for the Lord then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love and oh too far Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are children of one family. That means we have one Father, doesn't it? We are disciples in one school. That means we have one teacher, Jesus. We are sheep in one flock with one shepherd, Jesus. We are members of one body. And who's the head of the church? Jesus. We are stones in one building with one foundation, who is Jesus. So Paul's encouragement is that we need to grow together in spiritual unity. It's going to be tough, but it's not impossible. And so in speaking to the church at Philippi, 
in the gentlest way possible, he has hinted that there are some tensions among them. They need to get their act together without coming down with a a hard and fast rule. Their tensions weren't doctrinal, if you read the history. Their tensions were relational. Did Jesus have an inkling that this was going to happen in the church? I think he did because he prayed for the church. You remember what he prayed? He prayed this in John chapter 17, verse 23. He says to the Father, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So I wonder if Jesus had an inkling that there was going to be those relational difficulties in the life of churches. There were two things that bring about disunity in a fellowship and I just want to comment on those. of reconciliation. It is that bringing together of man and God, but it's also horizontal bringing together of man and man, those who have faith in God. I read an article this week about a German philosopher, and for the life of me, I can't say his name. It's something like Schopenhauer. How's that? Say that 10 times in a row. And he had this theory about the human race. And his theory of the human race is bunched on a group of porcupines. You know, this is a philosopher, mind, I, I remind you. And he says, the human race is like a bunch of porcupines huddling together on a cold winter's night. The colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we hurt one another with our sharp quills. And in the lonely night of Earth's winter, Eventually, we begin to drift apart and wander out on our own and freeze to death in our loneliness. It's a contradiction to say that we love God, yet will not be reconciled to others. In 1 John chapter 4, John wrote this, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must love his brother. Maybe in brackets, despite the quills. Or despite the prickles, we still need to love one another. By the way, um, I was praying about what to preach on in second term. And when we get back from holidays, I feel the Lord wants me to preach through uh, the letter of John, 1 John, on the theme of be real, be authentic, be genuine followers of Jesus. That's just a little bit of a preview. So the second thing that, that causes uh, disunity within a fellowship is 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 forgetting that the the gospel is a message of reconciliation. The second thing is that disunity focuses on the fellowship itself. So so it's a selfish, inward-looking thing. It's a wasting of energy on what's happening in the life of the fellowship rather than what we are called to do, what Jesus called us to do in the first place. What did he say? He said... um, in Matthew 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before men. So if there's this barney going on inside the fellowship, how can the light be shined outside the fellowship? And we know Matthew 28, verse 19 says, to go and make disciples. If there's trouble inside the fellowship, how can that be happening? So we need to live out our unity based on that calling that God has given to us. These folk, uh, these folk here, you might recognise them. The three tenors, anybody know their names off by heart? I don't either, so I'll read them out. 
Jose Carreras, Placido Domingo and Luciano Pavarotti. You remember them now? Yeah, yeah. Well, they were performing in Los Angeles and a uh, newspaper man tried to press the issue of competitiveness between the three men. And uh, Domingo replied, you have to put all of your concentration into opening your heart to the music. You can't be rivals when you're together making music. What's the story for us? We had to open our hearts to Christ first and sing the song with Christ that he wants us to sing, if you like. We can't get sidetracked by our own needs or by being introspective. When God says to us, look out to the harvest fields, that's where we should be looking, looking out to the harvest fields, not looking at what's going on inside. What's our motivation for unity? I believe our motivation for unity is that we are united with Christ. Oh, sorry, I've skipped a couple. Yep. Jesus said this, that we are to be one as he is one with the Father. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. In chapter 2 in Philippians, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus wanted that unity in his people. What's Paul's response to this issue? I think he has a wise, deep response in in that he points to the grace that we've received as followers of Jesus. He says that that we need to recognise that grace. What does it bring about in our life? It brings about unity with Christ. We are dead to sin. We are reigning with Christ. We're becoming a a participator in the new creation that Christ has brought for us. We are one in unity in that situation when we're united with Christ. We have comfort in his love. God's love, Christ's love should motivate us to unity. Look at what his love has done. He died for each of us. He laid down his life for you. Paul writes, it's Christ's love that that compels us. One for all. Do we agree on that? I hope we do. He died one for all. The Holy Spirit, who recognised Jesus as the beloved Son of God, is the same Spirit that Christ has poured out on each person as they come to faith in Christ. We have unity there. We should have unity in tenderness and compassion. The Lord was gentle, he was humble, he was meek, and yet he was great. He was a saviour, if you remember the other week we talked about, he was a saviour who wouldn't bruise a reed. He wouldn't snuff out a a smouldering wick on a candle. Shouldn't we share those same characteristics as God's family? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, I didn't put it up there, says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, let's look to Christ together. So in 2022, let's live a life that where we stand firm together, contending as one for the faith, Paul writes, based on the grace that we've received, motivated by having the same attitude as Christ. It means that we need to have courage. It means being full of courage. 
Because Jesus has already told us that the world will hate us because it hated him first. John chapter 15 and verse 18. Whatever happens, God wants us to live the Christian life every day. It means being involved in spiritual warfare, identifying the enemy, realising that the devil hates, hates it when we follow Jesus. But it also means recognising those who oppose us. I think we mentioned that in verse uh, 28 before. Where are we? I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. We know that there are people who are going to be opposing us. 1 John chapter 2 says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So we will get opposition from the world itself. The trends, the fashions, the emphases of the world. We have to be careful that we don't let the world control us. And even the devil will try and oppose us. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We need to be courageous recognising that suffering will come, that opposition is written into the life of a follower of Jesus. It's not that bed of roses, not smooth sailing. Paul realised this. He even knew about it right from the beginning of his conversion. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 16, uh, God speaking to Ananias said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So it was written into Paul's job description as a follower of Jesus, if you like. But Paul knows It wasn't just for him that that was said. He knows it was for all believers. Verse 29 says this, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. When it comes to the crunch, we all want to believe in Jesus, don't we? But we're not so keen to suffer for him. I mentioned that earlier. Our conduct should be such that no matter how unified we become, that we are aware there will always be opposition and suffering too. The question is, how are we going to respond to it? I want to finish with this. Paul calls us not to be frightened. And the word that he uses there is not to be startled like a horse. And we've all seen that, haven't we? A horse is uh, uh, munching away at the grass and something flashes past their side or a loud noise and they're off. Paul says we shouldn't live like that as followers of Jesus. We should be ready for it. We shouldn't be surprised. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter writes this. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. We are not surprised at what comes our way because we know God has forewarned us. How can we cope? We can cope by recognising that uh, that there is going to be opposition. We can cope by recognising that it's a struggle for Christians, but we can cope by knowing that Christ is with us and aware of what we're going through. Just a final comment. In 2022, let's live the Christian life 
spirit, characteristics of our Christian life. With appropriate Christian conduct, Christian unity based in humility and Christian courage not being frightened by those who oppose us. Remembering this, God is at work and God knows and he's with us every step of the way. I trust that you've been blessed. I've certainly been blessed as I've been preparing these messages on the fruit of the Spirit because uh, somebody said they were challenged on it this week and numerous people have said whatever fruit we've looked at or characteristics we've looked at that week, God brought challenges along. And uh, that's okay because that's the way we grow in our faith and our trust in him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that we've seen today, the uh, forewarnings that we've been made aware of with the fact that opposition will come when we choose to do the things you ask of us. When we choose to walk our lives in the conduct that is worthy of our calling. Father, help us not to be startled like a horse. Help us not to be frightened by the prospects. Lord, I pray that we'll be ready and that we'll be strong because your spirit equips us for those times. Father, we pray that uh, at the right time you'll give us words to say or you'll tell us to be quiet when we need to as well. But Father, we have this incredible hope that, uh, that in living for you, the, uh, the end result is that we are with you for eternity. And there might be a bit of a gap in between there. Father, that, that we need to uh, be prepared to walk together uh, in unity uh, with each other We need to trust you for the outcomes. So we pray for strength, Father, to do this, to live according to your word.